Good evening and a very warm welcome to Loose Hall, the home of the Center of Theological Inquiry here in Princeton, New Jersey. My name is Will Storer, and as the director of the center, it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome you here this evening for uh, a quite historic moment in our history because we are launching a new annual lecture series called the Loose Hall Lectures, and we're very honored that our distinguished first Loose Hall lecturer is our senior fellow here in, uh, at the center, uh, Dr. Robin Lovin. Robin is working on a major book on the theme of public discourse, uh, moral discourse in American public life. And through this year, he will be giving a series of lectures drawing on his work here at the center. We're particularly honored uh, that Robin is our first Loose Hall lecturer. Uh, he has had a remarkably uh, varied and distinguished academic career, having studied at Northwestern University in Chicago, then at Harvard University, where he got his doctorate. He went to the University of Chicago in his first teaching position and then went to uh, Drew University here in New Jersey where he was dean of the Divinity School. And he went from uh, Drew uh, to Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I don't know if you're keeping one step ahead of anyone, Robin, <laughs> uh, where he was the dean of the Divinity School there and then became a university professor of ethics. Coming from the UK, I had to learn what a university professor was. Basically, it means you're a genius. Uh, you teach across all the disciplines in a very distinguished appointment. And Robin was the uh, Carrie Maguire University Professor in Ethics at Southern Methodist University. Uh, before, we were deeply honored and very fortunate to welcome him here several years ago as our Director of Research to work with me for three or four years to develop our new interdisciplinary program at the center. And Roman has played a fundamental role in developing our advanced research program. He stands in a great tradition of senior scholars on staff here who have helped directors like me to develop our research program, Don Browning, Robert Jensen, and in that great lineage, uh, Robin Lovin. Robin has written widely in the field of ethics. Uh, his textbook as an introduction to ethics is a standard in the field reflecting his international standing as an ethicist, former president of the Society for Christian Ethics here in the United States. Robin is also one of the leading authorities in the world on the thought of uh, <coughs> Reinhold Niebuhr, the great 20th century American social and political ethicist. I first came across Robin in print before I met him in person teaching at the University of Edinburgh in my native Scotland, where his book, Reinhold Niebuhr and Christian Realism, was a standard text in the field. He not only writes about the history of that tradition in Christian ethics, but he himself is a constructive contributor to it. And his more recent book, Christian Realism and the New Realities, published by Cambridge Press a year or two ago, is a wonderful, uh, innovative, creative engagement of contemporary issues in a globalizing world from the perspective of the realist tradition in Christian ethics. And so it is with great pride uh, in a colleague and a friend and our senior scholar, the William H. Scheide Senior Fellow in Theology at the Center of Theological Inquiry, will you please welcome our Loose Hall lecturer, for 2016-17,
Dr. Robin Love. Thank you, Will. It's, it's a great honor to inaugurate this lecture series and a great pleasure to, to be here uh, and see a lot of familiar faces from uh, our friends here at the, at the center, uh, people from nearby campuses and, uh, uh, and our current research team. Uh, I did know, of course, when we began this uh, planning this series that we would be in the final month prior to the U.S. presidential election. And I've sort of been watching the slow motion car crash uh, and thinking about how to comment on, on where we are in the process at this point. But I decided that maybe the best thing that can be said about American politics at this point in our history is that we are in good company. Uh, Thomas Friedman joked in yesterday's New York Times that we could retire the national debt if we could figure out how to market the current presidential campaign globally on pay for per view. <laughs> but the fact is that in most of the world's developed democracies, they have their own version of the Trump and Clinton show. Uh, and uh, as a result, it's available free. So I'm not, I'm not sure that we could, in fact, uh, retire the national debt. Uh, everywhere, it seems, leading candidates often, rep uh, are, often represent factions within their parties rather than the mainstream. And many voters are alienated from the traditional political choices in their societies. There's everywhere a new culture of political celebrity, which is counterbalanced by widespread scandals uh, involving political leaders who are either pursuing their private interests or maybe just covering their expenses out of public funds. Ask to identify the public figure who best understands people like themselves. Most citizens of the United Kingdom choose a hereditary monarch who is one of the richest women in the world and whose ancestors have sat on thrones for a thousand years in preference to any of their elected representatives. So the problems that we see in our own political system are mirrored elsewhere. Structurally, presidential democracies like the United States face gridlock when their legislatures uh, and their executives can't agree, while parliamentary democracies like the United Kingdom and Germany discover that the parties in power can just barely muster a thin majority for the policies that they deem essential for the nation. Given the opportunity for a referendum, the people may reject decades of patient institution building by political elites. Now, all this is bad news, but it looks even worse in a slightly larger time frame. 30 years ago, when the Soviet bloc collapsed and China adopted a more open and globalized uh, economic policy, it seemed that democracy was going to be the political wave of the future. 
liberal democracy, as Francis Fukuyama put it, uh, was the only remaining global contender for political legitimacy. Today, that makes the political crises in the most developed democracies all the more ominous, precisely because there's nowhere else to turn for solutions to the intractable problems of poverty and economic instability and environmental degradation that face uh, the world today. Now, the alternative to despair is Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Politics has become a joke not just particular policies and politicians, but politics itself. I have become aware of this especially because I like to provide a historical perspective on these problems, and uh, it, a large historical perspective, in fact. And when I tell an audience that Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who gave us some of the Western world's first systematic treatments about politics, said that the human species is a political animal, they assumed that he was describing a problem, not our particular human excellence. And when I add that he understood politics as the way that these human beings organize themselves to do ethics in a whole society, the first response is laughter. Whatever Aristotle had in mind, when we describe somebody as a political animal, it is not a compliment. And when we talk about ethics and politics in the same sentence, it's usually to talk about what's missing. So the Aristotelian idea that politics is how we identify what real human goods are and determine the best ways to achieve them together seems so far from our contemporary experience that many people simply can't connect the ways they think about what is good and what is valuable in the world with what is politically possible. What we need to understand is that this separation of ethics from politics is not simply the result of bad leadership or the distortion of political campaigns by big money or the rapid shifts in public attention induced by 24-hour news coverage. All those things are real problems and are exercising a certain corrosive effect on our politics, and they need to be addressed. But the distance between ethics and politics, and here's what I want to stress this evening, the distance between ethics and politics is not a problem that originated with the last two or three election cycles. The separation of ethics and politics is much older than that. And when it began, it was not a problem. It was the solution. The political problem back at the beginning of the modern era in Europe was violent conflict on a continental scale in forms that are now more familiar to us in Syria and in parts of the Middle East. Weak states of uncertain authority battling their own populations to remain in power. Armed groups that look to us more like militias than like organized armies. Religious zealots fanning the flames and refugees fleeing scenes of massacre. Everything we think of in 
parts of the Middle East now could characterize Western Europe in the era of the wars of religion. Those realities don't lie so far back in our Western past in the total perspective of our history. In fact, they are more recent by at least a century than the Reformation, whose 500th anniversary we're going to all celebrate next year. Theologians, Catholic and Protestant, are now quick to claim the heritage of the Reformation. We're not so quick to step up to the podium and accept the prize for the 30 years' war. (laughs) And indeed, the causes of that conflict were multiple. They were dynastic and economic and political as well as religious just like the causes of the conflict in Syria today. But in the last half of the 17th century, after the Peace of Westphalia brought an end to those conflicts in 1648, it weighed particularly on the minds of theologians and philosophers that there was no longer any secure authority to settle conflicts nor any certain method or doctrine to resolve disagreements about the human good. Precisely because ethical concepts were by then so thoroughly implicated in the beliefs of a religiously divided Christendom, some way had to be found to separate those beliefs from politics. For otherwise, as Thomas Hobbes said, in 1651, it will be as when men disagree in a sum in arithmetic, that if there is no one to judge between them, they must necessarily come to blows. Now, Hobbes's judgment may seem a little harsh on mathematicians, who are, in my experience, not usually so temperamental. But Hobbes's stark image made the political point that the prospects for moral agreement are limited. And under modern conditions, unless we set up an authority to impose peace by power, the possibility of a return to civil strife is going to be an ever-present threat. A subsequent generation of British thinkers, John Locke, David Hume, and Adam Smith, Scots, most of them, Uh, would soften the edges of Hobbes' politics by emphasizing the importance of consent and self-interest rather than simple power in shaping that authority that keeps peace. But the systematic separation of ethics from politics, the separation of deliberation about the good from the exercise of power, remained fundamental to the ideas that would shape the American Revolution and the institutions of liberal democracy over the next three centuries. Instead of being located in a common body of truths, ideas about God, the truth, and the right, and the good, now belong to individuals who are free to make their own judgments but who are reciprocally obliged to tolerate others who differ from them. Government, in turn, holds sufficient power to keep order, provide security, and administer justice. But exactly how it does that 
is negotiated among self-interested persons seeking arrangements that allow them to pursue their own ideas of human flourishing, the pursuit of happiness, as the American Declaration of Independence puts it. This social contract approach assumes that these persons already know what their good is, and they enter into politics to maximize the opportunities to realize it. Aristotle's idea that people enter into politics to figure out what their good is was as foreign to Hobbes and Locke as it is funny to the audiences that I speak to these days. The theorists of modern democracy then wanted to set up a system in which agreement on the good would not be necessary because on the evidence of their recent history, it wasn't likely to happen. Indeed, too much agreement raised in the philosophers' minds suspicions that dogmatic churches or tyrannical rulers were actually restricting individual freedom and using power to impose their own ideas for their own benefit. So once the basic theory of social contract was in place, The emphasis in liberal democracy was to keep moral and religious idealists from seizing the powers of government or straining the limits of public discourse and imposing a consensus that covered more than what was strictly necessary for the requirements of civil peace. At this point, here again another basic thesis I want to argue tonight, at this point, Ethics in the Aristotelian sense became impossible. Not impossible in the skeptical sense of Thomas Hobbes, who believed that there were no moral realities in the world of facts, but impossible in the sense that the understood purposes of public discourse exclude the kind of deliberation about a shared social good that was what politics meant for Aristotle. Ethics was ruled out of order. Ethics became impossible, not in the sense that people didn't believe in it, for what else would the freedom of conscience mean if it didn't include the freedom to have moral ideas? But ethics became impossible in the sense that people wouldn't be allowed to articulate and promote those moral ideas through the use of political power. Or, in a later and more optimistic reading of the possibilities, ethics became unnecessary. It could be replaced by a system of carefully structured uh, institutions designed to maximize goods that are so general that everyone can agree upon them. That was what the utilitarians assured their readers. Happiness is good for everybody. Everyone knows what it is when they have it, So the question is only how to organize it so that we have the most of it to go around. The utilitarian standard of the greatest good for the greatest number provided a quantitative measure for political choices in contrast to the procedural and distributive standards of the social contract theorists. And political philosophers have continued to elaborate those contractarian and utilitarian alternatives to Aristotle, from Locke and Bentham down through John Rawls and Robert Nozick and beyond. 
there are real differences between those two approaches to liberal democracy. And there have been real advances in refining the questions. I, or at least an alternative version of myself who was properly prepared on the subject, could do a whole series of lectures on those utilitarian and contractarian approaches to politics and modern political theory. But for the moment, my purpose is only to offer a rough summary, and those of you who know the details will see how rough it is, but a rough summary of this modern idea of politics that I can use in a minute to highlight the differences with the Aristotelian account. So the modern idea of politics conceives social life in terms of two distinct spheres. One sphere, is the locus of truths and values and the commitments that grow out of them. In this sphere, we have religion and philosophy. We have churches, movements, schools of thought. And in addition, all of those things in addition to ideas. We have art and literature and the truths and values that they convey through aesthetic experience. And we have science and the methods that give us the facts about the world that aren't available to immediate observation. Call this, then, for short, the sphere of truth. The other sphere is the sphere of power, where we make decisions that stick because we have the means to enforce them. This is not where we discover truth. This is where we determine what's going to happen next. And the point is to bring as many people as possible along with that decision, often by allowing them to participate in it, but at least by securing their cooperation once the decision is made. And for that purpose, the use of force is always available as a last resort. So the sphere of truth, the sphere of power. And what's important for social peace is that these two spheres remain separate and distinct. And the idea that this is how things ought to be is deeply ingrained in modern thought and modern institutions. The separation of church and state, ideas of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, ideas of human rights and a secular state and public reason all have their roots in this thinking. So let us call then this separation of truth and power the standard model of modern politics. Sometimes when I'm lecturing in other parts of the world, I call it the standard Western model. But that underestimates how pervasive it is. Its fundamental distinction between individual freedom and political authority can be seen in international declarations of human rights, and in the constitutions of all sorts of regimes, liberal and revolutionary and authoritarian, everywhere in the world, it is the standard model of modern thought. The sociologist Max Weber set forth this standard model with particular clarity in his 1918 classic, Politics as a Vocation. I'll come back to Weber before the end of this lecture many times in the series. But what I want to focus on for the moment is his key distinction between an ethics of conviction 
and an ethics of responsibility. The ethics of conviction is held by someone who knows the truth and is determined to realize it in practice in this time and place. The ethics of responsibility, by contrast, appreciates the limits of power and seeks only those changes whose consequences can be clearly understood in the present. The vocation of the politician, then, is to practice the ethics of responsibility, whatever that politician's personal convictions may be. Another way of saying that ethics has become impossible, then, is to say that politics has its own ethics, which include the moral conviction that moral convictions ought to be kept out of politics. Now, the overall point of this lecture is that this standard model contributes substantially, if unintentionally, to the problems of contemporary politics. It does that by creating a discourse from which moral concerns are largely missing. Trying to exclude moral convictions has produced a political vocabulary that is simply too thin to express what people really care about. So we discuss our convictions with those who already agree with us. And as we talk more and more with the people who already agree with us, our suspicions of those who differ from us grow. The standard model has excluded the ethics of conviction from politics so successfully that it has unintentionally given us not social peace, but political polarization and gridlock. So the modern solution creates its own new problems, for which I think we need a different model. But before I move to outline that alternative, let me preface it with an, appreci with an appreciation of the achievements of modern political thought and some historical observations about why we may now be experiencing the limits of that thought. There's no doubt that civil violence was a problem at the beginning of the modern era, probably the chief political problem that the emerging modern state had to solve. And perhaps the most important political problem in the, uh, of, of the whole age. Insisting on a secular civil authority and protecting individual moral and religious beliefs with freedom and toleration was an effective solution to that problem. And the failures of civil authority and the breakdown of social life in places where the standard model has not taken root are a reminder of how important it has been for civil peace and as an environment for material and even spiritual progress. It's hard to pursue truth in a war zone. So for almost 400 years, the standard model has provided a framework for civil peace based on the consent of those who live with it, just as the first theorists claimed that it would. At the same time, we have to recognize that the standard model has been sustained during at least half of its 400-year history by the presence of revolutionary, reactionary, or authoritarian rivals 
who saw the separation of religion and power as an important historic achievement, but one that would have to be superseded by a new union of truth and authority that promised even greater benefits. To achieve those benefits, it would be necessary to sacrifice individual freedom to the dictatorship of the proletariat or the unity of the folk or whatever it was that represented for them the next stage in history. At least since 1789, then, people who hoped to see moral convictions embodied in politics could see liberal democracy itself as that embodiment. Beginning with the French Revolution, revolutionary and authoritarian alternatives produced a moral commitment to democracy as a reaction to the threats that they posed. The disappearance of those external threats after 1989, just 200 years later, the disappearance of those external threats after 1989 accounts at least in part for the discontent many citizens feel in the developed liberal democracies. Questions about equality, environment, economic and social rights that could be subordinated to a vigilant defense of freedom now demand attention, not only within democratic states, but across a world increasingly dominated by liberal democratic institutions of law, culture, economics, and governance. The success of the standard model in separating moral conviction from political authority undercuts the capacity of modern democracy to provide direction for the human future at the very moment when we have nowhere else to turn for it. With that historical sketch of the, modern, of the standard model in mind, let's turn back to Aristotle's idea that politics is ethics done on the scale of a whole community. That suggestion should seem a little jarring to you now if you've been able to locate yourself in this modern frame of mind, just as it usually seems a little funny to people who are when they're thinking about contemporary political life. We learned 400 years ago that mixing ethics and politics is a risky business, and we still live with and cherish a lot of institutions that are built on keeping truth and power at a safe distance from one another. But Aristotle came from a different time, and he had a very different problem. He lived in the 4th century BC, at a point in human history where people were getting accustomed to living in large urban centers. Their great cities would look pretty small to us, smaller than Princeton, say. But the concentration of people and resources in those places gave human beings a new control over the environment. And the beginnings of written history brought a new awareness of change. And the growth of trade and travel uh, made people aware of other customs and other ways of life. All that had been going on, actually, for more than a 1,000 years, just in Greece and much longer in Egypt and in the Indus Valley. But in the two or three generations before Aristotle, some Greeks had begun to reflect on these changes in new and more systematic ways. They called it philosophia, the love of wisdom. 
a term that encompassed natural science and sociology and literary criticism and law as well as religion, ethics, and politics. Socrates and his successors were the founders of interdisciplinary inquiry. And we ought perhaps to have a picture of Socrates to hang alongside the one of James McCord in the, in the members' lounge. So what Aristotle was trying to do was to develop a careful and systematic way of thinking that would identify the real human goods and figure out how a society could be organized to bring those goods into being and to maintain them. In contrast to John Locke's picture of individuals who come to politics with fully formed religious and moral opinions that we worry they just might try to force on others, Aristotle assumed that most people are actually pretty confused about what it is that's good for them. And they find out what that is, at least partly through their social experience with others. So learning ethics and learning to do politics are all tied up together. This is reflected in the details of Aristotle's thought, right down to his choice of words. For what we would call ethics, he sometimes calls ethique, and sometimes, especially when he's talking about what we might call social ethics, he talks, he calls it politique. You want to know what the human good is and how to achieve it, he's saying, you have to get down to concrete details. You have to know, he says in politics, what kind of topography your city has so you know what kinds of trade and agriculture are going to work for you. You have to know who your friends and enemies are so you know how big an army you have to have and which direction it ought to be facing. All of that is ethics slash politics for Aristotle, along with the scientific and philosophical investigations that allow us to understand human nature. Melissa Lane offers an outstanding detailed description of this, the emergence of this systematic thinking about public life in, uh, in ancient Greece in her book, The Birth of Politics. So instead of truth and power existing in these two separate spheres, Aristotle conceives of human understanding as a continuum. There is the kind of thinking that he calls contemplation, which delivers truths about the order of the universe and our place in it that is relatively independent of our particular needs and desires. That is the kind of knowledge the gods have, Aristotle says, and it raises the kind of questions that the gods are concerned about. And certainly, there is also in Aristotle's world the exercise of power, which he would have intimately understood, both from the uh, Athenian assembly that sentenced Socrates to death to the court of Philip of Macedon, where Aristotle served as tutor to a younger and not yet quite great Alexander. But in Aristotle's mind, truth and power form a continuum. And in that continuum that runs from truth to power, ethics slash politics forms the bridge between them. Call this, then, the Aristotelian model as a shorthand way of contrasting it to the standard model 
that seeks peace by separating truth and power. Though I will confess to you that just as I sometimes call the standard model the standard Western model, when I'm lecturing in other parts of the world, uh, especially in China, I sometimes describe something that looks very much like this Aristotelian model, but I call it the Confucian model. Uh, I'm cheating, of course, because I don't know Chinese and I don't really know all that much about Confucius. But the point I'm trying to make is that the emergence of systematic thinking about human goods and how to achieve them takes place almost universally in human cultures. And indeed, it took place in many of them at about the same time, give or take a few centuries. Professor Lane's story of the birth of politics could be retold with many variations in many different places. To be sure, the bridge between truth and power takes different forms. Aristotle and Confucius are very similar in that ethics is for both of them basically acquiring virtues. That is, habits of thinking that enable you to make good decisions about the human good and give good advice to those who actually exercise power. By contrast, Judaism and Islam built ethics on a code of law that had to be interpreted in concrete terms in particular social settings, often quite different from the conditions under which the law was first promulgated. Buddhism offers another model in which the bridge between truth and power is a set of idealized relationships between monks and laity that shape relationships for the whole society. So we can hardly say then that there is a universal ethics that works in every cultural and historical setting. But we can draw a contrast between the reach of that Aristotelian model that I've described and the historical particularity of the standard model. In the standard model, ethics becomes impossible in a particular set of religious conflicts and political transformations that happen in Western Europe. In the Aristotelian model, by contrast, the search for the human good emerges along with certain social possibilities that arise regularly in human cultural evolution across a range of historical settings. At a certain point in history, human good begins to be conceived as something that has to be discovered, created, and then maintained. And that discovery, at least in part, is the political work of creating and maintaining it. Seen in this way, ethics is inevitable. So there's a tension between the inevitability of ethics in human history and the impossibility of ethics in the political arrangements of modern territorial states. And this tension gives rise to the thin and limited public discourse in the major democracies today. And it thus contributes to polarization and distrust instead of providing the terms of peace that its early modern formulations promised. Resolving the tension in a way that restores a public discussion of ethics as the connection between truth and power is thus an important part of the solution to the dysfunctions of our contemporary politics. But if I'm right about the historical origins of the Aristotelian model and the standard model, something much larger is also in question here, and that's the future of politics 
in the larger history of human social evolution. The question is directed particularly toward modern liberal democracy because that way of thinking about politics has challenged the inevitability of ethics. But also because we have arrived at a point in history where that kind of democracy has the leading role in setting the directions for the human future. So we must ask whether the claim that ethics is politically impossible is compatible with the shared search for the human good that seems to inevitably arise in any society where people conscious of the choices which they have to shape their own lives and the future of their communities. Aristotle would have told us that the problem with democracy is that it runs on popular enthusiasms that undercut that kind of careful, critical discussion that's essential for a good society. Um, but of course, he never expected that democracy would last for a long time or get implemented on a large scale. So it would be ironic if the world's most successful democracies proved him right about the limitations of democracy after all. I hope that Aristotle will not achieve that kind of historical vindication. And it's certainly not my purpose in these lectures to vindicate him theoretically. The more we know about the details of Aristotle's social vision, the less likely we are to want to live in it assuming that such a thing were even possible today. But the Aristotelian model of moral thinking in political context does need to be reconciled with the standard model if we're to move from politics that merely satisfies the requirements of social peace to politics that once again engages human aspiration. That is the work of many disciplines, beginning with descriptive social sciences that can give us a better understanding of how public discourse actually works, how it works when it's offline and out of the glare of mass media. It includes the work of lawyers and jurists and legislators who have to explain how a range of individual and supposedly universal human rights can be realized in a variety of cultures. And it certainly includes the work of economists and political theorists who have the task of explaining how the greatest good for the greatest number can also satisfy the requirements of justice and who need to refine their accounts so that public reason includes a space for prophetic demands. Prophetic demands that have, in fact, changed the politics of liberal democracy, whether or not the standard model would have permitted them to be made. Professor Kathleen Caveney will take up that question, particularly in the next lecture in this series, which is based on her new book, Prophecy Without Contempt, as opposed, I suppose, to contempt without prophecy, which is what we seem to be enjoying lately. In any case, what I want to take up in my lectures is specifically the question how theology might figure in this reconciliation of competing models of political life. Because I think that the Aristotelian model poses questions for our theological traditions and religious ethics that are as challenging in their own way as the standard model's exclusion of religion from political discourse. This 
I, I hope it's clear then that, that I'm not simply holding up a classical model against the, the modern model, but I'm, I'm trying to understand the way that that classical model challenges both our religious convictions and our convictions about civil peace. The standard model sets up metal detectors at the entrances to make sure that nobody enters the public square carrying religious ideas about the human good that they may, might try to use in public arguments. The Aristotelian model takes down the metal detectors, but it suggests provocatively that these religious people do not even know what their theological language about the human good means unless they have tested it in public discussion in relation to other competing ideas about the good and in relation to the concrete possibilities of their own situation. Aristotle begins his thinking about ethics and politics with the observation, as I said before, that most people are not very good at figuring out what the human good is. We neglect true happiness in favor of short-term satisfactions. We confuse having a lot of good things with being good people. And we learn what our good really is over time in dialogue with other people and with our own previous choices. Until at length we become the kind of person who is able to make good choices, both for the self and for the community as a whole what we might separate out into the ethical and the political in our society today are knit together fairly tightly for Aristotle because the choices that make for my good are always bound up with the choices that happen to be available in my community. And how well those conditions in which my community lives make my good possible and whether the community is going to be able to maintain the conditions for the good that we all seek. Of course, not everything is the product of public discussion. Aristotle allows, as I said before, a place for contemplation. There is a particular kind of good life that depends more on contemplative thinking about the good than on public words and actions. But in the whole of Aristotle's ethics, there is very little that we would think of as theological or religious. He points out that there's always some oracle who's determined that there has to be a temple over here somewhere and thus limits your choices about the plan for the ideal city. But otherwise, we don't hear much about supernatural determinants of moral life and thought. That ethical realism contrasts sharply with Plato's idealism in which knowledge of the good in the ideal world of forms seems to be the prerequisite for recognizing a good person or a good city or a good anything else in the changing world in which we live. Now, I want to suggest that the reason why the Aristotelian model poses a challenge to us is that Christian theologians have tended in recent decades to be Platonists in these matters, notwithstanding their attention to the fall and to ideas that sin of, of sin that suggest we are perhaps even less prepared than Aristotle thought to identify our own good. 
So we say ideas about good originate with God. And if we do not live by them, it's more because of the weakness of our wills than the weakness of our understanding. The question is whether we have the courage and faith to stick to the moral ideal without compromise rather than whether we understand it. In many ways, this is a curious adaptation of the modern standard model of ethics and politics rather than a challenge to it. The theocratic imposition of a particular version of God's requirements that early liberal theorists thought to render impossible is, of course, a fringe minority view in developed modern democracies that uh, are not entirely absent. But it is common for theologians to invoke the biblical image of the resident alien who is in a political community but not of it because his or her true citizenship is elsewhere. This sectarian withdrawal from politics thus preserves intact the standard model separation of truth and power into two spheres, recreating an alternative ideal polity within the community of faith and leaving the realm of power to its own devices. Other anti-modernist views take seriously the Aristotelian model of truth and power connected by ethics, but they insist that modern thought has blown up the bridge between truth and power. Uh, and so the best we can do is try to reconstruct a moral vocabulary that might have been plausible to people in pre-modern times. But the question that the Aristotelian model puts to theologians is not whether we can make theology comprehensible in secular terms, but whether it is possible for us to understand what we are saying theologically without testing it in political terms. What if politics is essential to knowledge of the good as well as to its implementation? That's the question that I'll be asking in the rest of my lectures in this series. Professor Caveney will lead us into this inquiry with her account of the political role of prophetic criticism uh, just two days after the, the election, in fact, uh, next month. And I plan on December 8th to return to this Aristotelian theme with a contemporary account of political virtues. I've said a lot about the shrinking moral vocabulary of public life, both in this lecture and elsewhere, but I don't want to suggest that our problem is as simple as finding a new set of terms to use, nor that there is any one vocabulary that would fit all problems. Jeffrey Stout's work in Democracy and Tradition and Blessed Are the Organized shows us how important it is to pay attention to the ways that problems get resolved in specific local settings and to build our political theories from the bottom up. And I want to suggest that Aristotle's way of thinking about certain politically important virtues provides an example of that kind of theorizing. Aristotle's way of speaking in general terms about ethics was to identify the virtues that we acquire when we get into the habit of making good moral choices. And those virtues, in turn, prepare us for dealing with more difficult and more disputed questions in the future. 
Christian theology adapted that way of thinking to its own purposes, systematically distinguishing theological and moral and intellectual virtues. And I will try to continue that project by identifying a class of political virtues that is relevant to the choices that fall near the middle of that continuum between truth and power. Those virtues no doubt include some that work well for Aristotle, but there will be others that reflect the different scale on which our choices have to be made and the more inclusive community of discourse that makes them. And that question of inclusiveness points up the most obvious problem with the Aristotelian model. For Aristotle not only restricts the community of those who are eligible to discuss the good life to adult male citizens. He considers that the good life itself is beyond the reach of most of the people in the city around him. Women, slaves, and free workmen are simply outside the scope of his ethics. and He doesn't appear to be particularly troubled by that. One way to explore the connections between truth and power, then, is to ask how we got from Aristotle's world in which it is unproblematic that the moral community is a limited one to a world of universal human rights. As I noted earlier in this lecture, the standard model incorporates that idea so that the liberal political vocabulary of individual rights is built into constitutions and declarations, even in places that have no history of respecting those rights and no mechanisms for making them effective. But the standard model itself does not explain how they got there. For that, I will build my February lecture on Jeremy Waldron's work on human dignity and trace one route from theological truth through ethics to political power. A different way of thinking about ethics and politics, two more lectures to go, A different way of thinking about ethics and politics also requires a different way of thinking about who is a politician. In codifying the standard model, sharp distinction between an ethics of responsibility and an ethics of conviction, Max Weber, as I said before, provided an account of politics as a vocation for an elite leadership that explores the uses and limits of power. The politician in Weber's terms, undertakes an almost ascetic withdrawal from questions about ultimate ends in order to master Bismarck's art of the possible. In the Aristotelian model I'm following, there is a similar postponement of the satisfactions that accompany pure contemplation in favor of an engagement with circumstances that clarifies what ultimate truths mean for ordinary human choices and actions. But politics on the Aristotelian model is more broadly distributed and is not limited to those who carry out the task of government. Rethinking rethinking politics according to the Aristotelian model will allow us to reconceive political activity as a vocation that is both available to and incumbent on people of faith in modern liberal democracies. A moral identity grounded in theological truth achieves a particular kind of completion 
in activities that identify, create, and maintain human goods in social institutions. Historical circumstances may render that kind of politics unavailable. But when it is possible, the vocation to participate in politics is compelling precisely because of our central affirmations about God and the world and not in spite of them. It is that theology that connects the remaking, uh, rethinking of ethics and politics with the inquiries that have shaped our work here at the Center of Theological Inquiry over the past five years. And I intend to explore that connection in my final lecture, which I've tentatively titled The Future of a Political Animal. CTI's interdisciplinary approach to understanding human nature and the human place in the universe, I think, has the effect of reframing familiar problems in larger historical and intellectual context. We, we have uh, people working in our colloquium week by week this year to, to rethink political and ethical and theological categories in relation to the problem of life in the universe. Thinking about political problems in terms of evolutionary biology and anthropology encourages us to ask whether there are more general problems of the human organism in its terrestrial environment that politics has to solve beyond the particular historical problem of civil conflict that marked the birth of modern politics. If there is a theological investment in the Aristotelian model over the standard model, it's because the Aristotelian model encourages thinking in that larger framework where theological inquiry is most at home. In this, the Aristotelian model for ethics and politics has much in common with the disciplines of astrobiology, which similarly <coughs> encourages to see if we can restate theological claims about human nature and human purposes in terms that still make sense outside our familiar terrestrial frame of reference. At best, the dialogue between religion and science is like Aristotle's idea of politics. Science does not limit what we can say theologically, but it is an elegant test of whether we really understand what we're saying. Aristotelian ethics tests theological understanding against the concrete details of social and political choices. Astrobiology tests it against the whole of material reality seen, all at, seen through all of time. Where the two come together, if my account of the Aristotelian model is at all correct, is that those concrete political choices are themselves expanding in scope and extending through time so that we now have to begin to think in terms of a politics that extends across generations and may eventually include human communities in other parts of our solar system or beyond it. Exactly what political systems will be necessary to support those choices and what virtues will be required to make them work well is impossible to say at this point, though I'm hoping that by the time I get to the lecture on May 4th, the uh, research team this year will have come up with some progress on those questions. What does seem pretty clear, though, is that the future humans 
who face these questions will not find ethics impossible or unnecessary. Whatever the extent of future human life in the universe, ethics is inevitable. Thank you. The Loose Hall Lecture Series will continue with a lecture by Kathleen Caveney on Thursday, November 10th at 7 p.m. here at CTI. Professor Caveney holds appointments in both law and theology at Boston College. Based on her recent book published by Harvard University Press, her lecture is titled Prophecy Without Contempt. She'll give the lecture two days after the presidential election. The lecture is free and open to the public, and it will be recorded and published right here on the Fresh Thinking Podcast. 